This week's parasha, Parashat Ekev, is part of Moshe's farewell speech. And um, you always have to ask the question, when somebody's giving a speech, of course, what is their goal in the speech? What are they trying to accomplish? And the bulk of Moshe's speech, we've talked about this in the past, the bulk of Moshe's speech is focused on mitzvot. And the way that I presented it a couple of years ago, it is it uses the Aserat Dibrot as sort of a lesson plan or an outline, and then goes through each of the Dibrot and expands on how we're to fulfill God's word in each one of those cases. And Parshat Ekev is really focused on the first Dibar or Dibrot, however you want to break it up, which is about our relationship with God and our avoidance of Abu Dazarat. Uh, and that carries through and then goes into the next Dibar in Parshat Re'e. And in the middle of it, there is a narrative that is about the Egel, which makes a lot of sense in that context. But the narrative is kind of strange. Um, or should we say the speech is kind of strange when we compare it to the narrative. And it's strange in a couple of ways. The first thing I'd like to point out is that if you read the story in Shmot, which we'll look at a little bit later, who is the, shall we say, the flashpoint of guilt in the story of the Egel? Not the guilty party, as it were, but sort of the lightning rod of it all in the story of the Egel is unquestionably Aharon. The people come to Aharon and say, make us a god, and Aharon tries to stall them. But in any case, Heath fashions it. And we'll see, he's directly accused of complicity in the event. When we read the story, the way that Moshe tell, retells the story, Aharon is almost completely left out. And the one mention of Aharon is strange. And so I'd like to pose the first question, which is, does the generation of Sefer Dvarim, meaning the generation that was born in the desert and has grown up as wanderers, not as slaves, and is now ready to enter the land as adults, do they know the stories in Shemot and Bamidbar? Vayikra is not really a question. Do, I'm not asking about ancestral history and about Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov and Bereshit. That I'm not concerned with. Do they know the stories of the wanderings and the relationship between Hashem, Moshe, and Bnei Israel that we read about in the second half of Shemot, really from the middle of Shemot, from the, near the beginning of Shemotan, uh, the trials, the tribulations, the challenges, etc., Everything from the minute they left Mitzrayim. Are they aware of those stories? Because if if yes or if not, either way, we're going to have a problem. Here is the story that I want to point to, which is all of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 in Akev. It takes up a, a big chunk. And you'll notice that the story is about the Egel and other things related, and we'll talk about that. And Aharon, who again in the narrative is central to what happens, is mentioned once. And here's his mention. You can see him in red. We're going to go over this parsha in a minute, but just want to point point you to it right away. God, God got very angry at Aharon to destroy him. Now, we don't hear that Aharon did anything in this story. I also prayed for Aharon as I prayed for you, the Bnei Israel, at that time. Now, if I am a member of Sefer Dvarim's audience, and I know the story back then, then I'm surprised that Aaron's role in the Egel is left out of this out of this speech. If, on the other hand, I don't know the story, 
Why is Aharon suddenly in the middle of everything, as we say in Japanese, in Mitten Derinen, mentioned as being the target of God's anger, and he wants to destroy him, that Moshe has to pray for him? One way or the other, Aharon's mention here is odd. So let's go take a look at the passage. I'm not going to read the first um, uh, eight psukim of the, of the, uh, of the passage, because they'll lead up. You could see them on your own, but for context, I put them in. Now, you'll notice that I highlighted certain phrases because they show up with with odd frequency here in this passage. So when I went up to the mountain to get the, the luchota heaven, the, the tablets. Now, that's not where Moshe went up to the, up to the heaven. Moshe went up to the mountain, to the top of the mountain, to Shemayim, however we understand it, he went up there to get more mitzvot. And at the end of that time, Hashem gave him the luchot. Hashem did promise him he was going to give him, but that wasn't the goal of going up there, or at least the sole goal. But that's what he mentions. He does not mention at all getting more Torah there, which is, of course, the main part of what happens in Sefer Shemot, in the narrative. As you can see from the title of the shir, we're going to come back to that phrase, 40 days and 40 nights. Lechem lo shatiti. Not eating, not drinking, 40 days, 40 nights. And God gave me these two tablets that were written with the finger of God. What was written on them? All the things that you heard on that day of gathering from the fire, the mountain. Okay. So again, it seems that the entire purpose of Moshe going up there was to get the luchot. Which means, what was the 40 days of 40 nights about? See, in Sefer Shmot, the 40 days of 40 nights are time that Hashem is teaching Moshe all sorts of halachot about the Mishkan. Here's the materials, here's the different things you construct, here's the structure of the Mishkan and the dimensions, etc. All of that is presented, and that takes 40 days, 40 nights, whatever that may mean. But here, Moshe is going up for one purpose, to get luchot. So why can't he do a takeaway, as we say in Israel? Why can't he go, get in line, get the Luchot, and come back? Why should it take so long? And so now, uh, and notice that Moshe continues to stress this time period. So at the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, Hashem gave me these Luchot. And then Hashem said to me, Get on down, because the nation that you took out of Mitzrayim, you took out of Mitzrayim, has destroyed things. Now notice that the word la'asot here comes in the context of the Egel. They made a masecha. They, in the plural. This is almost exactly what we read about in Sefer Shemot. Hashem says to Moshe, let me destroy them, an interesting word, let me destroy them, and I'll make you a greater nation than they. Now, in this telling, Moshe does not respond to God, but rather, he comes down the mountain, the mountain's on fire, Again, I have the luchot. You all made. And parenthetically, every one of these phrases is a sheer by itself. Why is it an egel masecha? Why an egel? Okay, but I'm going to focus on the differences between this and the narrative, because there's something going on in the speech. 
So I grabbed the luchot, I threw them down from my hands, and I broke them in your presence. You saw me break them. Now you, who's he talking to? He's talking to people who weren't alive at the time. And then I fell in front of God like the first time. What does that mean? Now, that's strange. I fell before God. Why? Because of your sins. But notice, I fell before God like the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, without eating or drinking, because of your sins. But the first time that he had 40 days and 40 nights wasn't falling before God, and it wasn't because of sins. It was something about preparation for getting the Luchot. Very strange. And notice, I was afraid of God's anger because he wanted to destroy you, and Hashem listened to me also that time. What does also that time mean? This is the first time it's happened. And then suddenly, out of the blue, we already saw this, Aharon also wanted, Hashem also wanted to destroy Aharon. Which means I prayed for you, and I also prayed for Aaron. And obviously it worked because you guys got to see Aaron. He was part of your generation too. He recently passed away. Again, you made the eagle. You all made the eagle. I destroyed it in the fire. I ground it up. It was fine as dust. What we What is left out here is in Shemot, Moshe makes the Bnei Israel drink that mixture water, the Sota kind of image. And then, this is, I mean, so far, I don't know about you, I find this to be strange. This is where things really go off the weird meter. Now, this is out of order. Tav'era and Kivrota Ta'ava are in Bamidbar Yodalef, they're in Balotcha, right after the backwards nuns, when Bnei Israel fall off the wagon. And Masa, of course, is before Har Sinai. That's when Bnei Yisrael say, there's no water, right? And Moshe hits the rock and the water comes out. That's called Masa Umariva. So these things are out of order. You angered God. Now watch what happens. The quote unquote You rebelled against him. You have been rebels against God from the minute that I knew you. Now Moshe is talking to the generation of Sefer Dvarim, and he's telling a story about the Egel and about Masa and about Tavira and Kibrota Tava and the Miraglim that all happened to their parents, or shall we say their parents were guilty of. The reason their parents aren't alive, the reason that this is a generation of orphans is because of all those things. <coughs> and then, Look at the sequence. The sequence seems to be, just reading it straight, is you did this sin, you did that sin, you did this sin, and every time I fell for 40 days and 40 nights, because God wanted to destroy you. I prayed to God, and now, by the way, you're going to hear the two major themes that Moshe brings up at the Egel, and again at the Meraglim, when he prays for Hashem not to destroy the people. 
which his arguments are, don't destroy this nation that you took out. Theme one is the Brit. Pay no attention to this nation, meaning this generation and their evil, and their wickedness, etc. Remember the Avot. And then the second argument is, and it's exactly like Shemot, just backwards in order. Because the Egyptians will say, Because Hashem can't bring them to the land. God hated them, so he brought them out to the desert to kill them. In other words, the two themes are, Right, Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, remember that. Plus, there's going to be a chilul, Shem Shamayim, if you destroy us out in the, in the Midbar. Right, and that's, that's not what the goal of this whole thing is. And therefore, on your own terms, you're obligated to not destroy us. But when did Moshe say these things? In the narrative, he said these things once and a half a time. The once is the Egel, the half a time is Meraglim. But in this retelling, every time that they rebelled against God, God wanted to destroy them. And every time Moshe fell 40 days and 40 nights, and every time he presented these two arguments, this two-pronged argument to save the people, and of course it worked, and the people were saved. Very strange. And again, Aaron's role in this whole thing is odd. The other thing to point out is that in the next section, when he then retells about the second Luchot, because right now the Luchot are broken in his, in his speech, then Hashem told me to fashion two more tablets, meaning the difference between the first and the second, and this is in Shemot also, is the first tablets are totally God-made. The, the rock is hewn, the, the, the tablets are written on, all by God. Here, it's a partnership. Moshe is to hew the rocks into tablets, and Hashem is going to write on them. Exactly what was written on the first, also we shouldn't think that what's in Vatchanan is the second, not the case. Notice now, very different than we see in Shemot. Carve two tablets, come to the mountain, and make an Aron. And I will. This is regular future. God says, I will write on the Luchot. That we're on the first ones that you broke. And the famous comment to Rish Lakish, It was good that you broke them. And you're going to put them in the Aron. Sounds like, where are the other ones? They're all over the mountain. They're broken all over the mountain. So you're going to come up, and now you're going to make a box so that right away, when you when I, I write on these tablets, you're going to put them in an Aron, kind of keep them safe. So I made an Aron, Moshe says. I go up to the mountain, ostensibly, maybe, with a box, but besides that, with two luchot in my hand, empty. Tabula rasa. Couldn't get more literal. What did God do? He wrote on the luchot, kam michtav harishon. Now, by the way, this has got to be kind of frightening, because Moshe is holding the luchot, and God's writing on them. I have no idea what that's like. Again, that repetition, on the day that we all gathered, in the fire, etc., the way Hashem wrote them. And God gave these tablets back to me. And then I came down and I put the luchot in the aron, which now makes it sound that the aron is left at the bottom. 
So the first time I came down and I put the Luchot all over the mountain by breaking them. This time I come down and I put the Luchot in the Aron. And they're still there. One thing to point out, just parenthetically at this point, what do the Luchot look like? So it depends who you ask. If you ask their parents' generation, they could say, oh yeah, we saw the Luchot for a minute. You ask these guys, what are they going to say? They're going to have to say, we got no idea. We've never seen the Luchot. Because by the time we were born, the Luchot were in a box, and that box never gets opened. It's important to note, we have not physically, visually, experienced the Luchot at any time in our lives, nor will we. And then there's this odd tangent. Which has a traveling and famous Rashi and Midrashim here about, about the reversal of locations. But that's where Aaron dies. And then Misham Nasu Agudgodam and Agudgodi Yatvata Eretz Tachleimayim. And then Ba'etahi Yivdil Adonai Chevet Halivi. They'll say to their own Brit Adonai, Lamod Lefei Adonai Shatol Rech Mishmo Adayamazeh. At that point, Chevet Levi was separated out, which is very odd to say that Chevet Levi was made distinct after the death of Aaron. Very difficult, <laughs> and it's their job to carry the Aaron. Alkein Loyal Levi, etc., etc. And now Ba'anochi Pasuk Yod. Now, this seems to be referencing back. Seems to be not in order, but saying, rather, what happened then? When I saved you was, without eating, drinking, etc., I prayed for you, and Hashem attended to the prayer again, and did not destroy you. You understand that this speech is very strange. The speech also, if you notice, references the Luchot ten times. The Luchot are not mentioned ten times or mentioned frequently anywhere else in all of Tanakh. But in this speech, ten times the Luchot are mentioned. And not only that, but the Arba'im Yom Varba'im Laila is mentioned inordinately. And I'll just show you by comparison. Please take a look um, here. Uh, by the way, I updated the source sheet since I sent it out. So if anybody's interested, I'll I'll send you or you can see it online. Uh, the updated source sheet, which has uh, uh, no, quite a number more of Mikorot. <coughs> In Shmot, the whole 40 days, 40 nights shows up twice. Once when Moshe goes up and then the second time when he goes up the second time to get the, the to bring the second Luchot and have them written on. That's it. The Luchot themselves are mentioned a total of about four or five times in the whole narrative, right? In what in here and what you're looking at, source three, that's the second luchot, and then uh, this is going back to the to the original story. Hashem gives him shnei luchot ha'idut, etc. What's, Chris, what's critical here is this phrase in the narrative: "Va'luchot maase Elohim hema." The luchot are something made by God. That, of course, is set off against The word asiyah is consistently referencing the egel. And the opposite of that, of course, is the luchot. That's in Shmot. But look what happens here. In the story, in the narrative, look at Aharon. He's all over the place. 
they gather against Aaron, and Aaron says, give me the gold, and they bring it to Aaron, and then Aaron sees what's going on, and then Aaron declares, it's a Chag Lashem Machar, and then Moshe says to Aaron, what did these people do to you? And Aaron says, don't be angry. And then, here's the part that we really want to see, Vayar Moshe Ta'am, Kifaruahu, Moshe saw the people had gone wild, Kifra'o Aharon, Aharon had made them wild, meaning Aaron has, has this guilt put at his doorstep. And the very last line in this passage about the Egel is, That fits Dvarim. They made the Egel. And how does it end? Asher Asa, Aaron. That Aaron did. And then we look back in our story. We see Aaron is mentioned once and not in the context of making the Egel, but being the target of God's anger. What is going on here? So in order to answer that, I want to go to a different place um, in taking a look at the phrase Arba'im Yom Varba'im Laila. Arba'im Yom Varba'im Laila, which is our mother's milk. We've all grown up with that. Where's the first place that we know Arba'im Yom Varba'im Laila from? No. What? The Mabul. The Mabul, right. Hashem promises, I'm going to make it rain 40 days and 40 nights. The rain is four days and 40 nights. But then something switches in the middle of the story. And then when it actually describes what's going to happen, what happens? And then and suddenly is out. So I want to think what that means. In order to do it, let's get the whole picture. And we've got all of the Arbaim Yom that are in Tanakh. It's not that much. The quote-unquote Miraglim travel for Arbaim Yom. We never about Arbaim Laila. Well, how come? Why don't, why don't we hear about Arbaim Laila? They travel for Arbaim Yom, and after Arbaim Yom, they come back, and the punishment is you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years, one year per day of their Arbaim Yom. Why doesn't it say they wandered Arbaim Yom for Laila? Because you don't travel at night. That's why they wandered for Arbaim Yom. Let's keep looking. When Goliath comes out to challenge the the Jewish army, he comes out morning and evening for Arba'im Yom. Why not Arba'im Laila? Because there's no point to coming out at night. Nobody can see you. However, we find Arba'im Yom Arba'im Laila in one other context, which is strange, which is when Eliyahu runs away from Izabel. Izabel puts out a contract on him after the famous scene in Arakamel. Eliyahu runs away. Eliyahu goes to the desert near Beersheva. He runs to Eretz Yehuda. And he lies down. And a malach wakes him up and says, you've got a long way to go. And Eliyahu doesn't want to go. He wants to die. The story by itself. And he is given food and water. And we have the following line. And this, by the way, is going to be the mafteach to understanding what's going on. Eliyahu walks with that one bit of food and drink for 40 days and 40 nights, which means 40 days, 40 nights, not eating or drinking. Does that sound familiar? And where does he go to? Ad Har HaElohim Choreg. He goes to Harsinai. So this all is one big picture of Arba'im Yom, Arba'im Laila, no food, no drink, Harsinai. Nice little package. And clearly, and, and Eliyahu goes to the cave. The cave is ostensibly the same cave Moshe hid in on Harsinai, when Hashem put his hand over the cave and passed in front. All the same. This is the famous scene with the Koldamamadaka, the earthquake and the hurricane and the fire, and then the still silent voice. 
Let me ask you, how far is it from Beersheba to Har Sinai? The answer is maybe 15 days. How do I know that? Because how does Sefer Dvarim begin? Which is Har Seir, which is around Beersheba area. It's not 40 days and 40 nights. That's first of all. Second of all, Eliyahu walks for 40 days and 40 nights. First of all, not eating, drinking, that's one thing. Traveling consistently without any rest for 40 days, 40 nights, not happening. But more critically, traveling at night, not happening. And again, we set it off against the other two mentions of Arba'im Yom and Tanakh, one very famous, which is when Yonah comes and says, Od Arba'im Yom Nepachet, in 40 days Ninveh is going to be destroyed. And the whole strange scene with Yechezkel, which, by the way, is a redundant term, but a strange scene with Yechezkel, where he lies on one side for 390 days, lies on his other side for 40 days, and those 40 days represent 40 years of exile that are going to happen. It's a whole symbolic thing with the, with the Navi. What I'd like to suggest, and I know this is a, a radical suggestion, but you guys aren't new here. Arba'im Yom means Arba'im Yom. Now, but does Arba'im Yom mean uh, 39 days or 41 days? I'm not bothered by that. The exact, the issue of exactitude with time measurements in Tanakh, as opposed to the symbolism of time measurements in Tanakh, is a very large issue to discuss. Whether it's the 70 years of exile or exactly 70 years, does it mean something around 70 years and they're using the number 70 because it's a typological number? Not my problem. Arba'imio is 40 days. And again, I'm willing to say it's 38 days and 42 days, give or take, but 40 days. By the way, in source 10, when Hashem punishes B'nai Yisrael to wander 40, day, 40 years, one year per day that the Meraglim were out, first of all, that doesn't make much sense because we weren't those 10 guys. And second of all, um, we didn't wander for 40 years. We wandered for 38 and a half because we were already a year and a half into leaving Mitzrayim. 38 year and a half years after this decree, we entered the land. So 40 years is okay, fine. What I'm more intrigued by is the phrase Arba'im Yom Varba'im Laila, which again starts out as a promise about the Mabul. It then appears in the, all of the Har Sinai narrative, both in the narrative in Shemot and in the speech in Tvarim, as being the amount of time that Moshe has on Har Sinai, and there's always the emphasis of no eating and no drinking. It shows up again in the context of Eliyahu going to Har Chorev, and again without eating or drinking. So I'd like to suggest that maybe Arba'im Yom Varba'im Laila, unlike Arba'im Yom, 40 days, Arba'im Yom Varba'im Laila may be a kind of a catchword for an intense period of time. The intense period of time need not be like four days or ten days or some factor for. It may be a way of saying for a very intense period of time that was both day and night. And we have to remember that in the ancient world, and not just the ancient world, in the pre-modern world, nighttime was not a time of activity. For us, it's very different. We have a schedule. We go to work at 9 in the morning, get back at 5, and doesn't matter if uh, sunrise is at 6 or at 5 or at 8, and the sunset is at 4.30 or 8.30. We operate independently of that. If we have a class in the evening at 7 o'clock, we could meet in the spring and it's daytime, and we could meet in the winter and it's and it's night. We operate with a 24-hour clock. That's That's pretty recent. Nighttime was not a time of activity. 
So to talk about being in a particular place for 40 days and 40 nights, by the way, there's no reason to mention the nights, because if you're there 40 days, obviously there are 40 nights, right? It's like some scam thing where they said, we're offering you a all-expense-paid vacation for, you know, uh, 10 days and three nights. It's like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. But besides that, to say that he walked for 40 days and 40 nights with the power of that eating, that already suggests that may be a catchphrase for, in, for, for implying a very intense period of prayer, in this case, of meditation, of connection with God. And now let's look back at our story, and we're going to try to figure out two big things that are happening in Moshe's speech. The first thing is that Moshe continues to stress the Luchot. Again, they show up 10 times here. He also continues to stress which is a time where Moshe comes very close to God, this very intense period. He is angelic. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. And all he's doing is falling before God to pray on behalf of the people, and it's successful. And the implication from this story is that that happens every time that B'nai Israel as a nation messes up whether they rebel against God, whether they forget God, whether they take God for granted, all the different examples that he has. Tavera, which is wanting more than you're supposed to get. Masa, testing God. Kivrota Tava, just out and out lust. The Meraglim, which is a rebellion. Every one of those cases, Hashem is going to punish them. And what does Moshe do? Arba'im Yom Varbam Laila falls in front of him. Again, an intense period. And he prays for them. Now, what's anchoring here is that we have the we have the luchot, and the luchot that we, that our audience, us of Tzavod Rami, have never seen. The luchot are sitting in an aron that we know exists. We've seen it, but we've never seen the, the luchot. And on the luchot are written the words of that brit that we only really have from our leadership, from our parents, from our tradition about, and that we're that's that's driving us. Now, what about Aharon's role here? We're going to bring this all together. Aharon is not presented in this story as the one who fashioned the Egel. In this story, in this speech, Ben Israel did the Egel. You all made the Egel. It's all in the plural. Why is Aharon singled out here? Because Aharon was, and everybody understands this, was the leader in place of Moshe. Moshe says, I went up to the mountain, so anybody could figure out, well, somebody's got to be in charge. It must have been Aharon. Why did Hashem get angry at Aharon? Not because he made the ego. In this speech, he got angry at Aharon because if the people sin, the leader has to pay for it. And so then Moshe, as the real leader, comes down and prays for everybody, including Aharon. What's behind this entire story? Watch what Moshe is teaching B'nai Israel as they're about to enter the land. And keep in mind the background that at the beginning of this speech, Moshe said, el Adonai Hashem, please let me cross, and Hashem would not let me cross. Which means, what does everybody now know? Moshe is not coming with them into the land. Now, what have you experienced in the Midbar? What did your parents experience in the Midbar? You may not even be privy. They might not have been privy to it. But every time that they, as a collective, rebelled against God, forgot God, uh, sought out more than they were supposed to get, there was a threat against their existence. 
How did that fet get stopped? I stepped in and I prayed with this absolute intensity that we'll call our Yom Barbaim Laila. It might have been four days or four nights. It doesn't bother me, but that's not that's not the issue. With this tremendous intensity of prayer that spared them. And by the way, the leader wasn't spared. Aharon wasn't spared. What does that tell you? You're going to cross over and I won't be there anymore. So please be aware of how fine a line you walk. You walk in and you come in with Ahavat Hashem and a commitment and an absolute abhorrence for Abu Dazara, etc. You are going to conquer. You're going to have a fruitful land. Everything is going to be fantastic. But if you make the mistakes your parents made, I won't be there to pray on your behalf. And no leader who takes over from me will be capable of doing that. And the proof of that is Aaron. When Hashem wanted to destroy you at the Egel, Aaron couldn't pray on your behalf. The opposite. Aaron himself was the object of prayer. Because he was also under threat. What Moshe Rabbeinu was presenting in this speech, and remember in this speech, like all the speeches in Dvarim, he takes the story that happens in Shmot and Bamidbar, and refashions it in a way that creates a message of the story. The speech is not there to give information. It's not a history lesson. It's there to persuade the people to adopt the, the, the particular and correct attitude that they need to adopt when they come into the land. And therefore, they need to understand, I am not the one, I will not be able to pray on your behalf. And if you make any of these colossal errors as a group, you could be slated for destruction. Your leader won't be able to help you because he'll also be slated for destruction as the leader of the people who rebelled. And so this serves as a history lesson, quote-unquote, which really serves as a very strong motivation for them to keep their house in order. It leads to what comes next, which is how to properly worship Hashem, which is the end of Parshat Ekev, and then when you come into the land, what practical steps you have to make to ensure that this doesn't happen, which is destroy all of the Avodah set up one place for Hashem, come to that place regularly, visit Hashem regularly, maintain the positive relationship with Hashem all the time, and you won't have to worry about this. So what we've done over the past 30 minutes or so is take a look at this strange retelling of the Egel story in Parshat Ekev against the background of the narrative in Sefer Shmot and seeing that it's presented quite differently, and that the likely the reason for that is because Moshe's point here is not necessarily just to teach them about the Egel and about Avodah Zarah, as much as to teach them about his role on a constant level of praying on their behalf, and pointing out that he will not be there anymore, and that the, therefore they need to be themselves vigilant about their own behavior, so as not to fall into... Uh, those errors again, and Chas Shalom put themselves up for destruction.